Good morning, everybody. Thanks for being here. And uh, if you were here last week, I have a question for you. Have you thanked God yet? Yes. Cool. I have to say, it's been incredibly rewarding for us as a staff to just hear so many of you respond to us and let us know either through just shooting a message, giving us a call, catching us at random points and saying, hey, I started a gratitude journal or I, I, I woke up with a different perspective this morning. So that's just, that's, thank you for blessing us with that. It's just so encouraging to know that our church responds and moves with the things we put in front of them. And uh, I also want to thank and apologize to all of you kids if uh, your parents started doing this over the course of last week. <laughs> that is truly on me. And uh, all I know is when I told my father that other parents are now doing this, he was elated beyond all belief. It was like the legacy has continued. Excellent, excellent manners shall overtake all in the end. So you're welcome, and thank you. And thank you, and you're welcome, and yes, ma'am. Okay, but enough of that. So uh, today, if you are new and you're here for the first time, uh, again, welcome. And we're in the middle of a series called The Art of Practice. And my name is Rob Chestnut. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and we are delighted that you've decided to spend the Sunday with us. And last week... We talked about gratitude, hence the asking of the question and making sure. And, um, but this week, we're going to continue on in the series. And this topic is actually the one thing that I think I am most grateful for, and that is grace. So much so that when this was kind of on the list and we were arranging the schedule, I, I, I went into Steve's office and I was like, I want this one. I need this one. And he, of course, said, that's great. Get out of my office. And, um, and away I went. But no, uh, grace is something so, oh, it just undoes everything. And for me, full disclosure, as a pastor's kid growing up, I went to church every single Sunday and every single service that there could potentially be a service until I was 18 years old. In fact, the very first time I did not go to church of my own free will was my freshman year in college. Uh, that first Sunday came along and I said, I am doing this. No one is making me go to church and I am going to sleep in and I am going to enjoy every second of it. And the fire alarm went off. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. Fire alarm goes off. It was like, you, you, and of course, being a very good son, I did what anyone should do when the fire alarm goes off. I jumped out of bed, I pulled it out of the ceiling, and I got back in bed. Um, now, that is a bad thing to do, everybody, okay? Just for the record, I would not encourage you to take that step. Thankfully, nothing happened, but I was determined I was not going to go to church because I had grown up in church. I had existed in church. I had done everything in church, even if it was just me and my brother and the poor soul who was designated to be the youth leader that week, I was going to be there. This is the role of the pastor's kid. And growing up and getting a front row pew to everything that took place, you began to see kind of the ins and outs. And sometimes church began to be a little difficult for me. But there was always this word that kind of went around and around every time, this word of grace. We sung about grace. We read about grace. We talked about grace. We named our church Grace Fellowship of all things. And yet if you were to ask me, what does this mean? What is this little word, grace? Huh. 
I actually don't think I would have been able to tell you. I don't think I fully understood it. I know for a fact I did not understand it at that time. In fact, it wasn't until I graduated university, I ended up in the Czech Republic, and this was the, the first adventure, the first go-around, and there was a missionary who was there, and he was getting to know me, and he said, you need to go meet Artie. And Artie was a uh, missionary also at the time. He's a few years older than I was. He was a counselor, but Artie was a grace guy. And have you ever had one of those encounters when you go and you meet someone for the very first time, and that interaction, that, that first meeting sets everything in a different trajectory? Well, this was my time with Artie, but specifically because of how he started this whole friendship. And over the years, he would become my mentor, my very close friend, and I feel he's the one person who genuinely pointed me to Jesus and got me on the path. But the first time I meet Artie, it's on the second floor of the mall in Prague, there at the corner booth. I can see it all like it, it happened yesterday. And I go and I shake his hand and we exchange pleasantries and I plop down across from him and he leans over the table and he goes, just so you know, I'm going to ruin your life. Okay, should we start this introduction again? Did something go wrong? I don't fully know what happened there. I mean, Artie was kind of, you know, he, he was a, a, a stocky, thick guy with bald head. I didn't know if that meant he was like flipping the table over and coming straight at me. Like, who, who begins a conversation with the phrase, I'm going to ruin your life? And I will always remember those words because what he was inferring to was that he saw this gussied up pastor's kid who knew everything and had it all figured out and knew how to walk the walk and talk the talk and say all the right things and, and pray the right prayers and recite the right verses and blah, blah, blah. And he saw straight through that. And as a man who walked and lived and breathed in grace, he knew full well that what we were about to embark on was going to ruin me. And it did. Now, that's not my intention this morning. But if we get close to it, I'm not going to be disappointed. So what is this grace? What is this word? What does it mean? Philip Yancey calls it the last best word because he says from its original context when it was first created, it still holds that meaning and power. It hasn't been changed the years and his language has moved on. And so this aspect of grace, this ridiculous, unfair scandal of the universe... What is it? How are we going to come in contact with it? What is it going to do to our lives as believers if we fully come to believe and understand and wrap our heads around it? And that's what we want to look at this morning. I want to take a look at why it changes everything, how it goes about doing that, and then lastly, look at what it does to you and to me because it's that important, because it's that necessary. And that's why we want to focus on it as an art of practice this Sunday. But in order to do that, we want to go all the way back to the beginning, all the way back to the beginning, to the garden, where you have Adam and Eve and you have God, and the relationship is connected and pure. It's exactly what it's supposed to be. It's exactly as it's supposed to be planned out. And then sin enters into the mix, and it is ripped apart and a chasm opens between man and God, and there is no easy access back. We are separated, and we are cut off. 
and there is no way for us to bridge that gap. But God in his greatness says, I'm not going to leave people alone. I'm not going to leave you to that end. I'm going to put a plan in place that is going to allow you to get back. But it's going to take some time. It's going to be a process. It's not going to go the way you intend for it to go. And one of the first things he does in order to kind of bridge this back together is he institute what is known as the law. And when we say the law, we're talking about this list of rules and regulations that were set up in order to point the people back to God in hopes of removing that sin that was on them, in hopes of fixing that relationship because this was the thing that was broken. But there's a problem inherent in this. And that is that the law even in all of its goodness, can be corrupted. And sin is so evil, sin is so manipulative that it gets in there and it flips it around. And this thing that was supposed to get us back to God actually gets us even more stuck because the law in and of itself says, hey, guess what? You have to do these things and achieve these steps in order to get to where you're gonna be okay. But you know what happens when we do these steps? We don't get any closer. We think we do. And we sure try hard, and we sure put a lot of effort into it. But at the end of the day, we find ourselves in the exact same place. And all the hope and all the wonder and all the potential of this law falls flat because there's nothing we are ultimately able to do to get us back to God. All of this goodness, all of these things we try to achieve, they amount to nothing in the end because we just can't do it. Our sin is too great. There is too much. It covers too much. It is too saturated into everything of who we are. And we cannot go to God in that place. And even in the hopes of trying to remove it, in those sacrifice and that atonement and something else taking my place, it is not enough. It doesn't work. And we don't get to where we need to be. And the relationship stays broken. And we are trapped Paul himself, even he talks about this struggle in Romans. He says, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. It killed me. This commandment he's referencing, this is the law itself. This is that hope of trying to achieve something. But the reality was that as much as the law was in place, all it proved to do was cause you to sin more. Paul even says in the message, he talks about how I didn't know what it was to covet until the law told me, don't covet. It's like if I tell all of you right now, don't look at the ceiling. Yep. You're out of my graces. I accept monetary offerings to be brought back in. You've broken my law. Boom. And now what are you all thinking about right now? Why, why did he tell us to look at the ceiling? Why, why, why did he mention the ceiling? Is something on the ceiling? Is this like Oprah? Are we going to like get something if we look at the ceiling? Should I check under my seat as well? Are there a car under there? What's going to happen here? You know, you, you tell people don't do something and your automatic inclination is to what? Let's do it. Let's find out why. Okay, you can all look at the ceiling. There's nothing up there, by the way. It's the exact same ceiling that it was before. But if I don't give you that pass, that's all we're going to dwell on. Some poor soul in the first service, they missed that announcement. They were just like this the whole time. No. uh. But sin is crafty, this nature that infects everything. And so this law that was put in place to help us, that was supposed to get us back, it does not work. 
all it does is drive us even more and we get stuck in the cycle. We get trapped in this place. And what does it do? Well, it looks a little like this. Who can that be? Do you have any food you can spare for me? Come in. Look, I'm a convict. My name is Jean Valjean. I've served 19 years hard labor. They let me out four days ago. I'm on parole. I have to go all the way to Dijon to report by Monday, or they'll send me back to prison. So here's my passport. I can't read, but I know what it says. He's very dangerous. Monsieur, you're welcome to eat with us as my guest. I'm a convict. You saw my passport. I know who you are. You're gonna let me inside your house. What crime did you commit? Maybe I killed someone. How do you know I'm not going to murder you? How do you know I'm not going to murder you? What's that? A joke? I suppose we'll have to trust each other. I didn't kill anyone. I'm a thief. I stole food. I stole, but I paid for it. 19 years in chains. So they let me out and they give me a yellow passport. What can I do with the yellow passport? I have to go to my parole officer in Dijon, and then what? Starve to death? <laughs> 19 years, and now the real punishment begins. <laughs> Men can be unjust. Men, not God. All right, whoever you are, thank you. A meal and a bed to sleep in. A real bed. And in the morning, I'll be a new man. Victor Hugo's classic tale, Les Miserables, as visualized here in this film, but it's looking at the life of Jean Valjean, and that line in particular that he says, 19 years in chains, and now the real punishment begins. See, Valjean, by breaking the law, has entered into this area where now he is trapped. He becomes a convict, he's cursed, and he cannot really seem to get out of this situation. He's saying, I have to go to my parole officer in Nijon, and then what do I do? Starve to death? I'm stuck in this cycle. I can't get out. And this is the exact same thing that happens to all of us with our sin, with our hope of trying to achieve something. Because no amount of effort and no amount of good deeds would be able to get him out of that position. And the same is true for us. The same is true for us. Nothing we are going to be able to do in all of our goodness and all of our hopes and all of our schemes and plans is going to be enough to get us back to God. And the reality is that every other religion on the face of the planet has the exact same problem. Everyone is trying to do something in order to achieve that which is not achievable. Look at it. Uh, Hindus. Karma. If I'm good... I'll go from a slug to a turtle to a cow to a person, and then essentially I'll reach, you know, enlightenment. But I've got to be a really good slug in order to go and become a turtle. I don't know what that process looks like, but I'd be fascinated to find out. 
Islam, Muslims, they have a five-pillar system that they have to ascribe to. And if you do all of these things and you fall in line, then you can reach heaven. Buddhists have a path to enlightenment where you have to follow and be good and do the same thing. Jews under the covenant have the same struggle, the same things they're reaching for. And what's even crazy now in this post-Christian, post-modern society, all these agnostics or pluralists or whatever you want to call them, they're in the same boat. They're all trying to do something that will be good enough so that maybe the universe will look at them and say, hey, you know what? Not bad. You can go to whatever it is you think you're going to go to and et cetera, et cetera. But everyone is striving. Everyone is trying to get that step, to do that thing, to accomplish the goal so that we are now in the good area, the nice list. And it just doesn't work. No matter what you do for the rest of your life, no matter how good you are, no matter how much you strive, at the end of the day, you are going to end up in the exact same place you were when you started. And nothing is going to change that. Nothing that you are going to do is going to change that. So what does that mean? We become stuck and even this process, this hope of being a new man, like Valjean says, doesn't cut it. And the result, we fall back into what we were because we don't know any better and because we can't get out of it on our own. And he does the exact same thing. Let's watch. Anybody there? in. We go back to the same place we were before. So what hope do we have? What can we do to get out of this cycle? There has to be something. And there is. Because that plan that I talked about, God's plan all the way back in the beginning, he didn't forget about it. And if you read through the Old Testament, you see all these little hints and messages and things that begin to come through because that plan is always going to end up the way he wanted it. And if you go to the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31, please go ahead and turn and flip and go there because I really, I want you to highlight this passage and write down some notes on this one. At the time of Jeremiah, Israel is right on the cusp of headed into exile. 
Everything is as terrible as it can possibly be. And yet here we are, 600 years before Jesus is even going to enter, and God has this message for his people. And this is Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. The problem from the garden all the way back in the beginning is that sin enters into this relationship and it separates us. And the problem is that chasm, like I said, that opened. It's that sin that keeps us from getting across. And yet here is God saying, I will forgive their iniquity. And I will remember their sin no more. He's the one who's going to take it away. So no longer are these sacrifices, no longer are these things, these efforts, this law going to accomplish anything. Because he is going to take it away. This is unbelievable news. And yet, he is going a step farther. It's one of those, but wait, there's more moments, and this more is more than you can possibly comprehend. Because not only is he going to take the sin and cover it once and for all, but he is going to replace it, and he is going to give us life, eternal life with him. He's going to give us a place of prominence. He is going to give us that which has been rent away in order to fix that relationship so that we can be with him forever. And do you know how much work and effort and striving we had to do in order to get that? Nothing. Wait, what? This is grace. This is where grace comes into the picture. This is when it begins to flip everything on its head because this doesn't make any sense. This isn't fair. This isn't right by the standards that we hold within ourselves. And in Ephesians 2, I want you to listen to what grace sounds like. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Nothing you or I or anyone are able to do is going to allow this grace to happen. This is freely given only of God himself because of his great love for us. This is what grace sounds like, but I want to show you what grace looks like. One last clip. 
So we'll use wooden spoons. I don't want to hear anything more about it. I'm sorry to disturb you. You caught him. But I had my eye on this man. Oh, thank and... God. I'm very angry with you, Jean Valjean. What happened to your eye, Monseigneur? Didn't he tell you he was our guest last night? Oh, yes. After we searched his knapsack and found all this silver, he claimed <laughs> that you gave it to him. Yes. Of course I gave him the silverware. But why didn't you take the candlesticks? That was very foolish. Madame Gillot, fetch the silver candlesticks. They're worth at least 2,000 francs. Why did you leave them? Hurry. Monsieur Valjean has to get going. He's lost a lot of time. Did you forget to take them? Are you saying he told us the truth? Of course. Thank you for bringing him back. I'm very relieved. Release him. You're really letting me go? Didn't you understand the bishop? Madame Gillot, offer these men some wine. They must be thirsty. Thank you. And don't forget. Don't ever forget. You've promised to become a new man. Promise? Why are you doing this? Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. With this silver, I've bought your soul. I've ransomed you from fear and hatred. And now I give you back to God. Judgment says, take him away, throw him back in jail. And mercy says, ah, we'll just let him go. But grace, grace says, release him, but fetch the candlesticks. Why did you forget them? This image is Jesus Christ. And he grabs you by the shoulders and he says, with my blood, with my life, I've bought your soul. You no longer belong to evil. I've ransomed you from fear and hatred and death. And now I bring you back to God. This makes no sense. This is not fair. And this is not right. This can't be the way things are supposed to go, and yet this is the scandal of grace in the universe. And when you are near it, and you experience it, and you come close, you have the same reaction as everybody else did in that scene. What is going on? And this is the thing that ruined my life. Because this pastor's kid who knew every in and out and who understood everything about how scripture and everything is supposed to go, all of that just fell out immediately because I saw, I saw with different eyes. I understood in a different way. Philip Yancey says, grace doesn't depend on what we have done for God, but rather what God has done for us. 
So all that hope, all that effort, all that striving, all that work, all that thing I tried to achieve in the end gets me nothing. And yet, grace says, I've got you covered. This is where you're supposed to be. George MacDonald has this great line, and he said, um, there's nothing the church, I was supposed to say it in the beginning, the world can do almost anything as well as or better than the church. You need not be a Christian to build a house, feed the hungry, or heal the sick. There is only one thing the world cannot do. It cannot offer grace. And it is desperate for it. And so when I finally understood what was laid out before me, I found myself in this predicament because I was essentially saying, God, you mean to tell me that there is nothing I can do that is going to get me closer to you in any way, shape, or form? Yes. So then what does that mean for everybody else? Does that mean that everybody else has the same access, has the same opportunities, in the same position as I am? And the resounding answer that still burns me in my soul is yes. And that means the rapist or the billionaire or the janitor or the power broker or the president or the queen or the lowest of loads or the biggest of bigs, the pastor, the thief, the whoever, all have access, all have opportunity. And they are all the same in God's eyes. And that is why the line says, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And I was ruined I was ruined because everybody who I thought fit in a specific category no longer fit in the category. And I viewed every single human being that I came in contact with as having this little thing hovering over their head and it said, like me, like me. And it ruins you when you fully understand it. Titus 2, 11 through 13 says this, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace covers all and it is without condition and that doesn't make any sense. There's not some pendulum that it swings on back and forth because the ultimate reality is in the same vein in which I cannot do enough to get me closer to God, I can also not do anything to get me farther away from him when I am in this place. And that is unfair. And that doesn't make any sense. Like, Jesus died and rose from the dead and covered all of my sin. And that was 2,000 years ago. It's not going to end on Thursday. And then we have to start up something new. No, until I draw my last breath, every single thing I am ever going to do, every single sin I have ever and will ever commit is covered by Jesus Christ. So, um, <clears throat> Rob, if I can just interject real quick here. Uh, so you're essentially saying then that this grace gives me a free ticket to do whatever I want if we're all covered and we're all good, but God loves us anyway, right, 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 right? No. I'm sorry. That's not how this works. 
The Bible is incredibly clear on what, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer called it, cheap grace. That idea that we can just kind of do whatever we want to do. Romans 5.20 says this, Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So I want to make something clear that this attitude of those who say, I have grace so I can do whatever I want and thus abuse the gift that they have been given, I fear more for those individuals than I do for the ones who have no concept of it whatsoever. Because this is the reality of that which you have been given. It should be the total opposite of not I go and do whatever I want, but that I am far more driven to follow God because of what he has given me. Grace will always forgive disobedience, but it will not give it a free pass and it will not condone it or produce it. And I want to be very clear on that part. When Audrey and I were dating for the first time, the first time, yes, that means we broke up we had a little space, and then we got back together again, and everything is super great and wonderful now. Um, but I just want to clarify, you know, we don't have time to go through that whole story. You'll love it, I'm sure, but I just need to go ahead and let you know uh, it was all of my fault. I am totally to blame, and now everything is great. So, and she's not even here, so there we go. I mean, I'm just, I'm putting it out there. She'll probably listen to the podcast. So uh, we'll go with that one. But when we were dating the first time, we were existing at opposite ends of the gray spectrum, if you will, even though that thing doesn't even exist. Because she was of the mindset of, even though I have been given something and that God loves me, I still need to keep working. I still need to keep doing things because there's no way that I can be fully accepted as I am. Like, he hasn't gotten into that back closet to see what's in there. So, you know, I've got to keep things in line. I've got to be good. And me on the other side, good old pastor's kid over here with my get out of hell free card, folks. All right? Because I had a, you know, Jesus died. I'm going to heaven. Jesus loves little children. Great. I'll say all the verses I need to say. La-di-da. I didn't care. I didn't care. I didn't need to. I was already covered. All was good. Don't worry about it. And these views are so skewed and lethal because you are missing the richness of what you have been given, of what has been offered to us. If anything, like I said, it was that place, it was that time, and even that session when I was there with Artie, that that understanding of grace drove me to God with great speed because I could no longer live the way I was living. And like I said, it ruined me. It ruined me. I couldn't look at people the same way. I couldn't view them in the way that I wanted to view them. I couldn't pick and choose who was going to go to heaven and who was definitely going to go to hell. And because I had it all figured out because I was the pastor's kid. Sorry, guys. You're good, by the way. I'm not saying anything in particular. We can talk about that later, though, Dustin. But anyway. Uh, That's not how it worked. It's not how it worked. And my imperial standard that I had figured out of who was good and who was bad and what worked and what didn't was no longer functional. And that get out of hell free card just dissolved because the realities of grace hit me like a baseball bat and it ruined my life. 
I couldn't go on living with my cheap grace. In fact, I was so moved, I was so driven to it that I inscribed it into my skin so that I would never be without it again to remind me full well that every time I pointed and said, that idiot who... Dag nabbit. I need to wear long sleeves next time. That jerk who just cut me off as I was driving, who is beloved of God and have the same access to him as everybody else on the planet. Dagnabbit. Grace gets in your eyes and you view the world differently and you see humanity differently and there is nothing you can do to get rid of it and it ruined me. It's a one-two punch. The first is that you begin to see everybody with this little, like me, like me, like me, like me, like me, like me, floating over all of their heads because grace has saved a wretch like them if they so choose to follow. If they so choose to go to Jesus, there is nothing that is too much for him. There is nothing that his blood does not cover. And then the second thing it did is it drove me to my Lord. It caused me to live a different life because no longer was I doing things for God. I was doing things from him. Because the obligation, the requirements of reading my Bible and praying for a specific amount of time and doing all the things that I'm supposed to be doing, they don't amount to anything if there's no basis behind it. It is not going to get me any closer. It is not going to get me any better. I stay exactly where I am. And yet grace, when you breathe it and live it and understand it, grace drives me to my knees. It causes me to go to the word because I want to hear from him. I want to follow from him because of all that he has given to me. This is the scandal of the universe and it makes no sense. And it is so unfair and the world is begging for it. They are desperate for it. So how do we put this into practice, church? How do we apply this into our lives? And it's part of the reason why today I just wanted to unpack this little word a little bit more to begin to get a view. And if you look in your weekly, we've put down some action steps here at the bottom. And the first thing you need to do if you are going to embark on this road, is you need to willingly and fully accept the grace that God has given you. And if you are sitting there in your seat and you say, well, but Rob, you don't understand. I mean, this closet, it's, it's a hot mess back there. Like it's just, no, 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 you don't, you don't get it. You don't understand. No, I'm sorry. You do not understand. There is nothing that is too great for Jesus. There is nothing that is too much for him. So you need to be in that place like Audrey was to accept his grace and live in that. Or perhaps you're me at some point in time with your magical little get out of hell free card. You're just enjoying the ride. It's great to be a Christian in America. La-di-da, all that great stuff. And there's no application. There's nothing that comes from it. You don't understand either what you have been given and what that should do to your life. Accept his freely given 
gift. It is for you. It is from him. And no one else can give you that. Of all the books I've read in my life, What's So Amazing About Grace by Philip Yancey is probably at the top of the list. For me, it was the textbook that allowed me to go through this time of understanding and unpacking grace with Artie. And it's full of stories and examples and and moments that you'll read through and just go, how is this even possible? This doesn't make any sense. This is so unfair. And it's all the more reason why grace is what it is. Next, I want you guys to try and live from God not for him. And I don't mean that in the sense of saying, well, I'm living for God. We want you all to live for God. That's good. But I'm not saying in the sense of I'm living for God because I'm doing the things that I need to do. I'm following the rules that I need to follow in hopes of moving myself a little bit farther up the ladder so that maybe I can go and address executive pastor Rob and all of you peasants out there in the audience can just maintain your existence. No, no. This is not what we're looking for. This is not what we want. This is not what a life of grace is. And lastly, I want to encourage you guys to try this one. It takes a little bit more work, but try and be grace for somebody this week. Cover a check. Buy groceries to the person in front of you. But give something unmerited, unlooked for, completely out of the blue, and gift it to someone and watch how they respond. Watch their eyes light up. Watch their soul change because this world is starving for grace. And only Jesus, only we as Christians, as believers, are able to communicate that out. The band U2, who was one of my absolute favorites, has a closing song on one of their albums entitled Grace. And the final stanza of it is so fitting in the most perfect image. I absolutely adore it. And it says, Grace, she carries the world on her hip. No champagne flute for her lips, no twirls or skips. Between her fingertips, she carries a pearl in perfect condition. And what once was hurt, what once was friction. What left a mark no longer stings because grace makes beauty out of ugly things. Let's pray. My God, I thank you, Lord, for grace. Your grace, Father, that has been given freely to each and every one of us if we so choose to follow you. Grace that moves within our heart. Grace that tugs at our very soul that causes us to sit up and say, this isn't fair. Why would you go to such lengths for me? And yet, Lord, as a world is desperate and hungry for grace that only you can give, may we respond as your body. May we respond as a church. May we be that unlooked for thing It makes people sit up and say, why are you doing this? Why would you live this way? Because of what you have given to us. I thank you for it all. In Jesus' name, amen.